Man. That'll make a Baptist shout. That'll make a religious person do un, you know, get a little undignified. That was good stuff. I had a dream last night, guys, and that doesn't happen much, but once I can remember at least. And this dream was really kind of crazy. It started with me being at the pearly gates. And that's not a dream. I'm going there someday. But, um, but, it's, but I get to the pearly gates, and Peter meets me there. And I'm like, hey, Peter, how you doing, man? He's like, great, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. And, I was, and uh, so we're start, we start to chat about that time. I see Brother Greg walking through heaven with this just ugly girl on his arm. I mean, this girl is so ugly she could dress herself up for Halloween. I mean, that's how bad it was. And I said, Peter, what in the world's that all about? I mean, on earth, man, Greg had Mary Lee. This girl, this girl don't hold a candle to Mary Lee. What in the world? He said, well, Greg just barely made it. That's his reward in heaven. I was like, man, that's pretty messed up. But not too much longer, there's old Jonathan from the Crusaders. There he is. I mean, good-looking kid, can sing, walking arm-in-arm with her twin sister. I mean, this girl was so ugly. When she was born, she came out backwards and nobody noticed. I mean, this girl was ugly. And I said, Peter, what in the world's going on? Jonathan barely made it. <laughs> That's his reward. About that time, this amazingly beautiful woman comes walking. She's walking, just, just straight as can be, just walking. And I mean, this girl's good looking. She is beautiful. And, and I, I look over at her and, <laughs> and, and I said, Peter, what's this all about? I mean... You know, how, where's her reward? She said, John, she just barely made it too. You're her reward. <laughs> see, 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 John, it wasn't that bad, dog. I let you off the hook. I say that to say this. I mean, yeah, it's funny, but how much of a laughing stock has Christianity become in the world today? How much of a laughing stock has the church become today? I mean, we, uh, we come to gatherings like this, we calendar revivals, but many times we don't even have revival, and quite frankly, the world looks out at us and, and, and they're laughing at us because we say we're ready to meet God, but then when we get the opportune time to meet with God, we just don't really meet with God. And tonight I want to just talk, tell you, talk to you about a God's prescription for revival. Y'all ever been to a doctor before and he wrote you a prescription to make you get better? I believe God's got a prescription to make us get better. I believe he's got a prescription. I believe it's found in God's word. I believe that everything written in this book is completely and totally true. I believe it will not change. It has not changed, but it'll change us if we'll allow it to. And so tonight, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what... Well, what background you're coming from, but all I know is this, you're at the right place at the right time to meet with the right person that can change your life forever. And what, we're, what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, put your thumb there, but we're going to camp out in 1 Kings 18. 
Okay, so the majority of our text tonight is going to be 1 Kings 18, so you might want to, you know, go there, mark it, and then go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Y'all may know the story in 1 Kings 18, if you've been around church for a while, or maybe you came in one Sunday, you probably heard about a man named Elijah who has one of those good old-fashioned western showdowns at high noon on the top of a mountain. You know, Elijah's wearing the white hat because he's a good guy, and he's having a showdown with the bad guys, right? Y'all probably heard the story. But tonight I want to unpack this because I believe with all of my heart, I believe with all of my heart that, that as long as God leaves us on the earth and as long as God uh, Terry's and sending Jesus that he's got work for us to do. As long as he's got breath left in your body, he's got a work for you to do. He's got a work for you to do. And that work starts with you and it starts with me first and foremost laying it all aside and saying, you're God, I'm going to follow you. So go with me. Here's what I want you to look at first. Watch this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 3. For I passed on to you as most important, as top priority, as the most important thing that you could ever hear, as numero uno, this, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Then look at verse 6. And he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Now Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't mix, he doesn't mince words. He said, look, you can know all there is to know about woodworking. You can know all there is to know about hunting. You can know all there is to know about Duck Dynasty. All there is to know about computers. But the most important thing you better know is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and rose again for our sins, and he appeared to over 500 at one time, which means at some point he's coming again, and if you're not with him, you ain't going with him. Now, keep that right there. Keep your thumb right there. Now go with me. To 1 Kings 18. Look at verse 16. Obadiah went to meet King Ahab and told him. Then Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when King Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you destroyer of Israel? Elijah replied, It's not me that's destroyed Israel. But you and your father's house have, because you've abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon all of Israel to meet at, me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. 1 Corinthians 15. I make known to you what's most important, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and he rose again. Proving he's God, right? But we just read in 1 Kings 18 that the people of God have a major problem. They're following other gods. They're erecting idols of other gods and they're bowing down and worshiping them. 
So God's prescription number one, his first remedy for our problem to get us right is to stop following other gods. Just stop following other gods. Look what it says. You hear what he said? Because you're following other gods, you're destroying Israel. Now, keep your finger there and go to 18 verse, chapter 18, verse 28. Or look at verse, or look, just go 26 through 28. Watch this. They took the bull that he gave them. They prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them and he said, Shout loudly, surely he's a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away. Maybe he's just walking on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and is going to wake up. They shouted loudly, listen, and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed out of them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. Could it be? Could it be that we're sick because we know who the real God is, but we have allowed ourselves to bow to gods that suck the life out of us rather than the God who gives us life? See, the Bible says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But did you see what happened in the nation of Israel? Did you hear verse 20, 28? They were so busy worshiping this other God that they actually cut themselves until the life poured out of them. You know why some of us in the room tonight you know how I know some of us are following other gods? There's two things. Number one, our testimony's been affected. He said, look, you're so busy following other gods that it is destroying the nation of Israel. The church and the American way is getting destroyed by Christians who'd rather follow other little G-gods than the one big God named Jesus. And you say, John, I'm not following other gods. What does your checkbook say? What's your calendar say? What's your watch say? Because where your time is, where your treasure is, where your talent is, is where your worship is. It amazes me that we can go and cheer for the Oak Grove, Oak Grove Tigers on Friday till we're hoarse. And as soon as that alarm goes off on Sunday morning, we're hitting the snooze button. And we, if we do come to church, we sit, Staring at our watch, tapping our foot, passing notes to our neighbor, getting on Facebook, doing everything we can to not pay attention. Because our heart's allegiance has been swayed to a God that takes life rather than the God who gives life. And we wonder why the guys in the bar aren't in the church house. We wonder why the marriages are, be, are not coming back together. Amen. We wonder why the public schools aren't having prayer led by teachers anymore. 
It's because we in the church have decided that our heart's affection and allegiance belongs to somebody who never died for it. But it belongs to people who take our life rather than give it to us. That's why some of us come to church and all we can offer God is leftovers. That's why some of us come to church and raise our hands and sing words from our lips that never come from our hearts. You know how I know the rest, sometimes that are, we're also following other gods because some of you in the room right now are empty. You're empty. And you put on a good smile, you put on your Sunday best, you walk up in the church house, but you're empty, empty, empty because you thought that bottle of alcohol was going was to ease the pain. Because you thought, hey, I found the right guy or the right girl now, baby. I'm good. You thought that, man... If I just work more hours and make more money, it's going to be all good. Here's what I want you to know. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried according to the Scriptures, and He rose again, proving He is God. You can keep following the other gods if you want to, and you can continue to have your testimony affected. People not want to follow the God that you say you follow in Jesus, even though your life says something else, and you can continue to be empty. But understand this, you've made that choice. You've made that choice. And when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, listen, here's why I believe that we don't follow Jesus anymore because we forgot what Jesus went through. Most of us have been raised in church and we live 2,000 years or so after Jesus died and we just kind of flippantly say, well, Jesus died for my sins. Big deal, Jesus died. We even sing hymns about it. But does it really resonate in us what he did? I'm going to kind of paint a picture for you. I'm not an artist, but I'm going to do the best I can. Here's what the Bible says happened the last week of Jesus' life. He's just had a meal with his disciples called the, called the Last Supper. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with three or four of his best buds. And the Bible says that he's under such pressure, such stress, that he begins to get on his knees seeking the face of God. And one account of Scripture says he begins to drink Drip, sweat, uh, drop, sweat drops of blood. Do y'all know that's an actual medical condition? It's called hematotrosis. Where when you're under such stress and such trauma, the capillaries in your head can actually burst, sending the blood into your sweat glands, and it causes your body to go into traumatic shock. And here's my Jesus. His body in shock. And then one of his best friends that's hung out with him for three and a half years named Judas sells him out for what they paid a slave in those days. And he brings with him a crowd of guys with clubs and, and, and swords and they come and they tie Jesus up. And the Bible says they walk him to the place of the high priest. Now, a lot of theologians believe that the high priest lived somewhere between one to three miles from where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, understand this. He's been up all night. He hasn't, he hasn't eaten. His body is in shock, and now they're walking him. And as they're walking him, they're punching him. They're slapping him. They're mocking him. They get him to the high priest's house, and they take him before the high priest, and there they trump up these charges against him. And they continue to pound on him and beat him. They take him to a man named Pilate. 
Y'all know the story. Pilate, the governor of the area, he's got the authority to release Jesus. Matter of fact, it even says in Scripture over and over again, you know what Pilate says? He's not worthy of the death penalty. He's not worthy of the death penalty. But you know what happened? Pilate, just like some of us in the room, cared more about what everybody else thought than what God thought. And he handed Jesus over. And here's what happens. They take my Jesus and they take him to a place probably in the city square and where, where there was a post. And they tie his arms to the post. And at least one, but probably two of the biggest, ugliest, nastiest Roman guards that have been trained in the art of execution since the age of about 11 or 12 grab in their hands a whip-like structure called a cat of nine tails. Had a handle on it with nine leather straps. And at the end of each of those leather straps are pieces of metal, pieces of rock, things that are going to tear the flesh away. And one by one, they begin to lay into Jesus. And make no mistake about it, the, the, the lashes didn't just open his back, guys. They reached across into his torso and tore his torso apart. And there's my Jesus being beaten for me. And the last thing he needs me to do in 2013 is act like I'm bored. And Jesus takes this whipping. They believe that most people could last to 40 lashes and then they'd die. Most accounts believe Jesus took 39. And when he couldn't take it anymore... Which, by the way, let me, paraphrase, let, me, let me stop right here and say this. 500 years before it happened, Isaiah 52 says these words. He was, beat, he was messed up so bad you couldn't even tell if he was human. 500 years before it happened. You wonder if he's God? Why would Isaiah write about it 500 years before it actually happened if he wasn't? So they take him and they beat him. And then to add insult to injury, you know what they do? They craft a crown of thorns and they place it on top of my king's head. And they beat it down with a rod piercing his head so the blood could flow. And these masters of torture, these masters of execution, they then take a robe and they cover the battered body of Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever put a piece of fabric over an open wound? You know what happens? All the stuff from that wound begins to absorb into the fabric. They get Jesus to the point where they're going to crucify him and Rather than apply neosporin to the cuts, they rip off the robe, exposing those open wounds again. And they lay Jesus down and they take six to nine inch spikes and they drive them in the fold of his hand. And they cross his feet and they drive it in, uh, through his feet, nailing him to the cross. Now friends, the only way that you can breathe and live on the cross is to push yourself up. Can you imagine the pain that Jesus is feeling as every one of his nerve endings are pierced through that nail? Can you imagine what Jesus is feeling as his laid open body is rubbing up against the hard wood of that cross? And all he's asking for me and for you is to serve him and stop following other gods that didn't do that for us. And there's my Jesus hanging for hours and hours gurgling and gasping for air and looking down and saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. 
looking down and saying, you may not have been the best person, you may not have been the most athletic, you may not have been the best at this or at that, but I love you and I'm proving it right now. And my Jesus died so that I would live for him. He paid a debt I couldn't, he paid a debt he didn't owe. I owe a debt I couldn't pay. See, the Bible says we got a problem called sin. And in the book of 1 Kings, it says that the nation of Israel had forgotten what God had done for them. How he had brought them out of captivity and how he had um, defeated every enemy in their presence. How he had provided, how he had given them life and hope and meaning. And I believe today that the church of America is following other gods because we've forgotten what Jesus did for us. We say he died. But about all the cross is to us now is a piece of jewelry. We say Jesus has died for our, for our sins and we're going to live for Him. But you know what we relegate Jesus to? A little G God and we elevate something else as the big G God of our lives. When was the last time that God you're bowing to did for you what Jesus did? But, the, but it gets better. Because after they lay my Jesus into a tomb and they seal it with the best seal they could find and they station guards there and say, listen, y'all stay in guard because we're hearing this rumor that his disciples may come and try to take the body. They put this gigantic boulder in front and three days later, my Jesus got up. We got to stop following other gods. And when Jesus, listen, does it make sense to follow a God that takes life rather than one who can do exceedingly, abundantly, more than all we could ask or imagine? Because here's the deal. Here's the deal. If he can rise from the grave, then he can do exceedingly, abundantly, more than all we can ask or imagine. Because he's God. And if he's God, then he deserves me and you to worship him as God. First prescription for revival is to stop following other gods. I don't care if it's your cell phone, your relationship, alcoholism, drug addiction. I don't care if it's pornography. I don't care what it is. That junk is going to take your life and leave you empty. There's only one God who's going to give you life and fill you to the full. And his name is Jesus. Second thing I want you to see, I ain't even started preaching yet. Second thing I want you to see is this. Not only do we got to stop following other gods, we got to stay off the fence. Watch this. Watch this. So Ahab summoned, verse 20, all the Israelites, and they gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if it's Baal, follow Him. Let me just speak in North Louisiana. Get off the dadgum fence. If you're going to follow Jesus, go all out. If you're not, get out of the way so those of us who are can follow Him the way we see fit. Listen, 
If He's God, then follow Him. Here's what we do in church. Sunday and Wednesday, I love you, Lord. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I love myself. And I lift my agenda to worship me because I'm worthy. That's what we do. We go and we dabble in the world and we go and we live life how we want to live it. And then we come on Wednesdays, we come on Sundays, we give God rubbish and expect Him to bless us. We come on Sundays and we come on Wednesdays and we're, oh, I'm all about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And we throw out these, we throw out these Christianese sayings. I'm praying for you, brother. How you doing? Man, I'm blessed and highly favored. And we say all this Christian lingo. When all, in all actuality, we're on the fence and we're teeter-tottering between the world and Jesus. Listen, Jesus didn't go through what I just explained for a 99.9% .9 commitment. He didn't go through it for a 50-50 commitment. He went through it because He wants all of you because He gave all for you. Get off the fence. The number one cause of atheism in America today is people who profess Jesus with their lips but don't live Him with their lives. I firmly believe this. If our nation is really going to come back to God, then we in the, we in the church had better stop saying we're going to follow Jesus and just start doing it. Amen. Stay off the fence. The third thing is this. we got to stand out from the crowd. Watch this statement. Look at verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I'm the only one remaining prophet of the Lord. But there's 450 prophets of Baal. Isaiah is willing to stand in front of 450 prophets of Baal. Most of us can't stand for God in front of four or five co-workers. We can't stand in front of four or five family members. Here he is standing in front of hundreds of people and being counted for the cause of God. And most of us in the room, if one person says, well, I, don't like, I don't like what you're talking about about Jesus, we tuck tail and run. And we act like, oh my gosh, they're gonna call the they're gonna call the ACLU on me, and I'm never I'm gonna be banned from speaking ever again. Listen, listen. Jesus is calling looking for some people who will stand up and be counted for his cause. Though none go with me, he wants to know who's gonna follow. Who's gonna stand up and be counted? Listen. And you know what else Elijah did? He stood out. Listen, if you're a Christian today, you're not called to fit in. You're called to stand out for the glory of God. We got far too many Christians, far too many churches who are looking more like the world and less like Jesus every day. We need more people who will look like Him and stand for Him and stand for righteousness. Listen, the price that He paid on the cross for you and for me is worth us standing on Him and what He did for us. But you say, well, John, you know, I'm just afraid that people will laugh at me. I'm afraid I'll lose friends. I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of that. And you know what the Bible says? God's not giving you a spirit of fear, but of power. You don't stand on your own strength. You stand on His. The same strength that rose Him from the grave. The same strength that can handle your problems today. That's what you stand in because you've got a God that's not dead, but is surely alive. Stand up and be counted. The next thing I want you to see is this. 
you got to have seriousness about getting right. Amen. Watch this. Look at verse 30 of 1 Kings 18. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. You say, John, what's the big deal? He, he, he put together a bunch of stones and he erected an altar. What's that got to do? Throughout the Old Testament, the altar was the place where people did business with God. They would construct this altar. They would put stones together and they would construct it and, and they would go to that altar and they would have a defining moment where they laid it all down and they said, we're following you, God. You know the problem in the church today? We're serious about everything else but getting right with Jesus. We're serious about our agendas. We're serious about playing church. We're serious about doing the religious activity. But we ain't serious about getting right. Elijah made the altar so the people could get right. Some of you today, you're one step away from, from the cross of Jesus Christ to having your life radically changed forever. Are you serious enough about getting right to take it? Some of you as Christians, you're one decision away. You're one moment away from selling out to Him to seeing God do a measure, uh, huge things in your life. But you've got to be more serious about it than you are about anything else. You've got to be as serious about getting right with God as you are about breathing. Amen. I bet right now, you know what? I can't swim. I can't swim. Y'all, I can float pretty good, but I can't swim. And several years ago when I was, uh, before I really got right with the Lord, I did a stupid thing and took some seniors on a trip and we went white water rafting. I'm still trying to figure out why I did that. But the Lord is merciful. <laughs> but I got thrown into the uh, Arkansas River in Colorado. Now when you can't swim and you're white water rafting, your prayer life greatly exceeds. And you've got a little Argentinian guy telling you in broken English how to not die. Here's the deal. I was serious about getting back on the raft. I was serious about not dying in the, Colo in the Arkansas River in Colorado. But you know what? Why am I not that serious about getting right with Jesus? Because that means everything. And until you and I get so serious about getting right with God as we are about breathing or about our next meal or about our kids succeeding or about us advancing up the ladder, nothing's going to change. We've got to be serious about getting right. You know what? God's tired of hearing us say what we're going to do at the altar and then seeing us as soon as we leave the doors not doing it. He's looking for, you know what? God would rather you not even come to the altar if you don't mean business. He wants seriousness, guys. Why? Because he was serious when he died for you. I'm sure glad Jesus didn't say that morning, God, I think I'm going to sleep in today. Because going to the cross ain't that serious to me. Where would we have been if Jesus had said, you know what? God, um, I'd go to the cross, but I have to check my schedule and make sure the disciples don't have a t-ball game today. He didn't say that. He was serious about doing what God called him to do, and he went to the cross in spite of everything else that was going on. The next thing I want you to see is this. You've got to surrender the most important thing in your life to God. Look at this. Watch this. Look at verse 33. 
he arranged the wood. He cut up the wood, and, or he cut up the bull, and he placed it on the wood. He said, hey, fill four water pots with water and pour it out on the offering to be burned and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. He even filled the trench with water. Now, why is that important? If you read around 1 Kings 16 or 17, you'll find out something about the nation of Israel. They're in a famine. If you're in a famine, what's the most precious commodity to you? It's water. And Elijah says, hey, if we're going to see God move, then there can't be anything else in our lives more important than Him. So bring me your water. And don't stop there, Matt. Go get your in-law's water. And Brother David, don't stop with your, just your water and your in-law's water. Go get the water down at the local convenience store. I want every drop of water we can find. We're going to saturate this doggone altar with water. Here's the point. Until you're willing to get rid of the thing that you hold most dear, God's not going to move in your life. Because the Bible says He's not going to share His glory with anybody. Why would God want to come and bless a church? Why would God want to come and, and do huge things in somebody's life when He's not even the most important person in their lives? Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I find it fitting that that phrase, I saw the Lord, didn't happen until King Uzziah got out the way. Could it be that this church is one person away from them laying their, their most important thing, their water on the altar, from seeing God blow the top off this place? Could it be that America is one or two Christians away from them laying their water on the altar, that thing they think they can't live without, whether it be their cell phone, whether it be their kid's success, whether it be their finances, whether it be um, a relationship, whatever it is that you hold most dear, could it be that God wants to do something in your life if you'll just lay it on the altar? What's your water? What's your water? Because until Jesus becomes it, nothing's going to happen. He doesn't want to be a number on your list. He wants to be your list. He's not looking to be somewhere in your schedule. He's looking to be what you revolve your schedule around. And all He's asking you to do is go find your water and go lay it on the altar of your heart. And you know what happens? The fire falls. The fire falls. Could it be that God, the fire of God is not falling in churches today because God's not the most important thing in churches today? He's not going to move where He's not wanted. If everything else in your life was stripped away and all you had is Jesus, is He enough? Is He enough? You didn't, have your face, you didn't have your phone and Candy Crush or Angry Birds. Is He enough? Your friends bail on you, your job goes away tomorrow. Is He enough? Your house is lost in a fire, but all you have is Jesus. Is He enough? Because until Jesus is it, until He's the most important in our nation, in our churches, and in our lives. He's not going to move the way we want Him to. What's your water?
What's your water? And tonight, would you be willing to lay your water down on the altar of your heart so, to see the fire of God fall in your life? Some of you have been praying for a lost family member to get right. Could it be that the water's got to be put on the altar to see God do that? Some of you have been praying that God brings revival to, Mount, to New Zion Baptist Church. Could it be that you've got to get out the way? Maybe you're the water that's got to move. Because maybe you're the most important thing in your life. Some of you have been praying, Lord Jesus, please help me. Please help me get a job. Please help me with my finances. Could it be that that's the one thing that he wants you to give to him? Y'all know he can do more with what you have than you can? The last thing I want you to see is this. The sin's got to be dealt with. The fire of God falls. The nation goes, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But watch what happens in verse 40. Then Elijah ordered them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let even one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Kishon River, and he slaughtered them. John, that's a pretty drastic thing about sin right there. I mean, I mean what's the big deal? Here's the, here's the thing. Some of you here, listen to me very closely. Some of you really want to live for God, but you've got some sinful, some sinful tendencies or some sinful relationships that you need to cut ties with. You really want to see God do something? Get rid of the, sin, the things that might trip you up. Elijah knew, hey man, the fire of God's just fallen, but if we don't get rid of these prophets right now, they're going to rue their ugly head again, and they're going to cause our people to fall, to fall back in to, to going after idols. So for, you know what some of you, for, for, you know what it means for some of you? You need to go home and you need to disconnect your cable or satellite. For some of you, you need to do a washing of your CD collection. For some of you, you need to get rid of some of your friends. For some of you, you need to be willing to lay your job on the line because they're making you work on Sundays and Wednesdays. For some of you, the sinful activity, the sinful tendencies... You need to spend more time on the work, seeking God than you do Oprah. Elijah said, hey, I'm not going to give these guys a chance to come back up and trip my people again. Some of you are going to see God do amazing things here in just a minute at the invitation. But tomorrow or Tuesday, your faith could be shipwrecked because you're going back and you haven't gotten rid of the sinful tendencies that may linger around you. Maybe for some of you, listen... You need to get the internet removed from your phone. Maybe some of you, students, maybe some of you need to kick some friends to the curb. Maybe some of you need to uh, go take some mouthwash and disinfect your mouth. Because of the jokes that you're telling in the locker room. So what, tonight my question is this. God's laid out a prescription. If a doctor gives you a prescription and you don't take it, are you going to get well? God's just giving you a prescription to get right. But if you don't follow it, you ain't going to get right. If you don't do what the prescription says, you can't expect to get better. That's where we come to at the invitation time tonight.
A choice that you have to make. In 1 Corinthians 15, nine times, listen very closely, nine times Paul uses the personal pronoun you in the first three verses. You know why he said that? Because you have to make a personal choice tonight. Can't nobody else make it for you. Brother David can't make it for you. Brother Greg can't make it for you. Your, your husband, your wife can't make it for you. Your kid, your grandkid can't make it for you. You've got to come to a realization tonight. You've got to draw a line in the sand and you've got to decide, heaven or hell, I'm making a choice. You've got to decide tonight, I'm selling out to Jesus or I'm following the world. You've got to make the choice. Can't nobody make it for you. So as we come to the time of invitation, some of you may just need to come and make the choice to lay your water on the altar of your heart. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Nobody looking around. Some of you in this room tonight, you're empty. You're dying. You're on a one-track road to hell. Because your whole life, you've bowed to gods that take life rather than the God who gives life. And tonight, you're ready to meet that God who paid it all so you could have life, so that you could have freedom, and so you didn't have to be in bondage anymore. See, some of you are one decision for Jesus away from finding the freedom you've been running to everything else to find. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around. If you're here tonight and you'd say, John, I'm ready to meet Jesus. I, I want Jesus. I want a life. I want to know that I know that I know that I know that I know that if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven. But before, beyond that, I want to have a life of freedom, of peace, passion, and meaning on this earth. John, I'm empty, and tonight I want to be filled. And I want Jesus. Not religion, not denominationalism, not baptism, not church membership. I want Jesus because He's God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you tonight, would you lift up your hand where I can see it? Keep them up. Hands going up everywhere. Anybody else? Everybody, anybody else? Anybody else? I don't want to miss anybody. John, I'm ready to, do, I'm ready to meet Jesus right now. Let's go. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. John, I want to know. Here's what I'm going to do. For those of you who raised your hands, I'm going to say a prayer. Now, the words that I say aren't nearly as important as the, the heart that you say these, these words with after me. I'm going to say a prayer, and if you mean what you say, or if you want Jesus, then you repeat these words after me. And if you mean it from the bottom of your heart, then there's going to be a party going on in heaven for your honor. So if you want Jesus, you say these words after me in your heart. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I believe that you are God. And I invite you to come into my life and change me, save me, and set me free. I'm tired of being empty. And tonight I'm asking you to fill me. Now if you prayed that prayer with me and you meant it from the bottom of your heart, after you're raising your hand, look up at me where I can see your face. Raising your hands and saying a prayer when nobody's looking is great. But in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to do something real brave. And I'm only going to ask you to do it if you're serious. 
I'm going to ask you in just a minute, if you prayed that prayer with me in you minute and you looked at, you're looking up at me right now, in just a minute, Pastor Greg, Brother Greg, going to be standing right here. You just come to him and you say, hey, I prayed that prayer with John. I gave my life to Jesus. Here's why. Because if you can be convinced to stay in your seat and not make it public, then you can be convinced to live for the world and what you did tonight doesn't matter. Jesus wants all of you. He wants you to be unashamed of Him because He was unashamed of you. The Bible says this. If you're ashamed of Him before men, He'll be ashamed of you before His Father in heaven. He wants followers, not fans. So Brother Greg will be standing here. If you raised your hand and you said, Hey, I need Jesus. And you prayed that prayer and you meant it and you're looking up at me now. Then in just a minute, when I say amen and the crusaders start singing, you just come to Brother Greg and say, Hey, I prayed that prayer with John. Now maybe for the rest of you, you're Christians. Here's my question to you. What part of the prescription do you need to take to get right with God? Is there some water you need to lay on the altar? Is there some guides you've been following that you need to repent of? Whatever it is, you can come lay it at the altar and get right tonight. You can come to Mary Lee and you can... Uh, confide in her and she'll pray with you. There's other people that would love to pray with you. But here's the deal. I believe this. I can't, call a, I can't call a lost person to get right with God without calling the church to get right with God. So in just a minute, I'm going to say a prayer. When I say amen, if you need to come to the altar, you come to the altar. But if you prayed that prayer and you meant it and you're looking up at me, you just come to Brother Greg and say, hey, I pray with John. Why? Because we want to rejoice with you and we want to join the angels in the biggest party that's going on the party up in heaven in your honor. Lord Jesus, I love you. And I thank you that you're God not because I can think you're God, but because I know you're God because you died for me and you came back to life again. And Lord Jesus, I ask as God in this invitation time to do what only you can do. Change lives, revive hearts, and move in ways that we can only imagine. I ask you to defeat the enemy now just like you did 2,000 years ago. He has no power or authority here. Lord Jesus, to the ones that raised their hands and to the ones that looked up at me and prayed that prayer, give them holy boldness to get out of their seats, to come down to Brother Greg and to tell them that they prayed that prayer, not so this church looks good, not so that the evangelist looks good, but so that we can rejoice in knowing that there's been souls saved and added to the kingdom of heaven forever and ever, and so we can pray for them. Jesus, bring revival. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys.